You are listening to Let's Be Honest with your host, Just Jonda. Okay, give me the background music. Okay, and welcome everyone to Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, Just Jonda, and tonight we are going to get into a bunch. We've got a couple of things going on. While I'm talking to you on the podcast, I'm also live on Bego. So as promised to the folks on both platforms, while live on Bego, I am also going to be talking about the blind side, and I'm going to be um going over well actually just playing the audio from the uh the interview or i guess we could call it an interview whatever we want to call it uh the where the family came uh, the family attorneys came on and they talked about everything from their point of view so if you all who are on uh both podbean as well as um as well as Bego, bear with me. I just want to make sure that uh, everything is being picked up when I am playing this. I think that it's going to be no problem for the people on Bego to hear it. So I'm going to play the press conference from uh, from the, uh, the family's attorneys, and then we are going to get into it. Um, in fact, you know what? Before I even get to the press conference, let me go over something that we did not have the first time we talked about this. And what we didn't have the first time we talked about this was the actual um, was the actual documentation from uh, from Michael Orr and uh, his well, rather Michael Orr's counsel, basically letting us know what this was all about and why they were filing the petition. So first things first, I'm going to pull that up so that I can go through it and everybody knows specifically what we're dealing with here and why this whole matter is even in court. So as those of you who aren't living under a rock may know, I know that wasn't very nice to say, right? But I'm telling you, this story has been so all over the place for the past week. You kind of would have to be living under a rock not to know about it. So uh, I'm vamping at the moment. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm moving some stuff around on my screen so that I can see it better. Okay, so here we go. This case was actually filed in Shelby County, Tennessee, which is where uh, the court uh, the probate court where this order was entered years ago happened. So again, everybody who is listening, if you are uh, watching on Bego, make sure that you are hitting me up with those gifts and beans so that if you have a legal question about this, 
I will answer it live as we go through this. So I am watching the screen. I'm also watching the screen live here for those listening live Sunday night, 10 p.m. Eastern. Well, it's probably 1014 Eastern here on Podbean. So let's go. Comes now Michael Jerome Orr. Now we know that Michael Orr is um, is the individual who the blockbuster Hollywood movie, The Blind Side, was uh, basically it was made sort of supposedly about him. I guess that's part of the problem because <laughs> we don't really know. I think that that's really why part of the reason why he is um, why he's claiming that he was not um, that that's part of the problem. And we're going to get into that in a moment. Okay. So uh, he was the person who supposedly the blind side was supposed to be about. Although if you saw the movie, it pretty much ended up being more so about the family and how wonderful they were to take him in. But he's the the body that uh, gave them the story, so to speak. But in real life, and of course, with the blind side is gonna, the movie is gonna come into play because that's where all the money stuff comes in. In real life, Michael Orr was, uh, who's now 37, he grew up in, uh, in the Tennessee area, specifically Shelby County, which is, uh, which is actually where Memphis is. We keep hearing Shelby County and people are like, where's that? It's Memphis. So that's what I'm going to call it because who the hell knows what Shelby County is? So he grew up there in the Hurt Village housing projects and, uh, for those of you who are listening or watching, I am paraphrasing all of this from the actual petition filed by Mr. Orr and his attorneys that set the world on fire this week when it was filed on Monday. I believe that was uh, August 14th. So uh in 1996, when he wasn't quite 11 years old, custody of young Mr. Orr was awarded to DHS, which we know is Department of Human Services. Depending on where you live, it may be called DIFUS. That's what we call it in New Jersey. And they would have legal care and control of him until he was 21. And, and some of these legal terms are very important as we get into what the Tuies did. But long story short, just in terms that most of us understand, welcome, Lewis. Welcome, Edwin. Um, and and uh, let's see. Welcome, Nina. Uh, he was a ward of the state. And DHS, according to him, really didn't do much for him. Unfortunately, that is not unusual. I wish it was, but it is just not unusual. The representatives from DHS, essentially his social workers who were supposed to take care of him, pretty much lost track of him. I mean, despite the fact that he was a kid, he was only 11 when he went into the system. So he lived on the streets, he and and various other places to took care to take care of himself the best he could. Because he was a smart child, he was able to kind of get by and maneuver. But for a good period of time, a formal education for him in a consistent way, pretty much didn't exist. And thankfully, because he was intelligent just naturally, 
he was able to navigate the fact that he attended 11 schools in nine years. Now, again, think about that. 11 schools in nine years, which means that there are years in there, at least two, possibly even three, that he changed schools at least twice in one year. And again, that's if we're being generous because there may have been years where he changed schools more than that and then other years where he managed to be there the entire year and uh unfortunately he also repeated first and second grade as we know no, no reflection on him whatsoever he was in a neglectful home um i believe the father uh, based on what i recall from you know, his story years ago, the father was in the system and ultimately died. The mother was um, on drugs at some point and dealt with illnesses. She was alive. I do know that she was definitely alive when he was 18 because it uh, the petition references that she was in court with the family when or with michael when this paperwork was executed but really in name only because once she lost custody of him and he became a ward of the state she never got it back but like like most children they're gonna try as best they can to reach out to their parents i mean that's just natural Okay, so in late summer 2002, so now we're coming up on the time frame that the movie covers. It That would also mean, if we're talking 2002, he was probably in about maybe the ninth or 10th grade because I'm sure that there was some times when he was pushed ahead in grades despite what happened when he was in first and second grade. But in the summer of 2002, he met a man um, named Tony Henderson, and he was uh, the father of one of Michael's friends from school because, again, he was a friendly kid. When he would attend school, he participated in sports. I mean, he became like this major football player, as the story will go. So um, Tony Henderson appreciated this kid thought he was a good kid. He, he appreciated his focus, his drive, all of those things. And so he took it upon himself to find Michael a school where he would get a decent education because Michael wanted an education. So he introduced him to the principal of Briarcrest Christian School because that's one point, uh, just as an aside, that I think gets lost in some of this as well. The school that he attended where he became acquainted with the Tuies. The school where he attended, that he attended was a private school, but it needs to be pointed out that he was already attending when he met the Tuies. So once again, with all of the fallacies and the sainthood bestowed upon the Tuies, they did not introduce him to that private school education. He was already there. So Dr. Stephen Simpson, who was the principal, also recognized the potential in their first meeting and the administrators and all of them. So they agreed to admit him as a student 
upon him receiving satisfactory grades and he was allowed to participate in their sports programs. Now, I'm going to stop here. Let's not pretend that when this big old, probably even as 10th, 11th grader, over six foot tall, umpteen pound uh, young black man who expressed an interest in sports, particularly football, went to that school that they didn't see the potential in what he could be bring to their football program. We know that high schools recruit young people every day. Nowadays, they even have signings coming right out of middle school as if they're going to a university or signing into the pro leagues. So I appreciate that his attorneys wrote this very nicely about the individuals at Briarcrest and maybe Michael's feelings about the inter individuals at Briarcrest and, and them accepting him are still very positive, which of course would be why his attorneys wrote it very positive. But I am not going to sit here and pretend that we don't know that this young man was being used from the tuta to the fruta before he even met the Tuies because they allowed him to the school and he began playing football immediately, but it doesn't mention anything about him being provided housing or someone else stepping in to be his guardian. In September, 2023, I'm, I'm sorry, in September, 2003, easy mistake since we're in 2023, which was Michael's junior year, he began playing sports at Briarcrest. From the beginning, he excelled. He made first string for the Tennessee All-State game in both football and basketball and was selected to play in the Army All-American Bowl his senior year for football. So again, Briarcrest knew what they were getting and ultimately so did the Tuies. But if he's good with Briarcrest, we'll be good with Briarcrest. But we've got our eyes on you, Briarcrest. Okay, so football scholarships poured in from powerhouse football universities across the nation. Again, not shocking. Those scholarships were probably probably started coming in or at least the offers or coaches looking at him and, and uh, maybe even his coach shopping him around by the end of his junior year. Now, whether or not it was the Division I folks, that might have come a little bit later once he proved that he was consistent by not only being at the same school, but playing as, as well and on the level that he played his junior year in his senior year, which we know he did because it was his senior year when he made the all uh, the Army All-American and uh, the Tennessee All-State game for the second year in a row. So... It was clear, at least from the high school standpoint and, you know, colleges who are scouting them out, he was something special. Michael was on his own at Briarcrest and nearly penniless. And so this is what I talk about with using him for what he brought to the table. But Briarcrest, where the hell was he supposed to live? Who was going to feed him? Who was going to nurture him? But he could play football so it's all so it's all good right okay so 
said he took over an hour riding buses and walking to get from Hurt Village to Briarcrest. So he went back. He was still living in the projects with whomever he could live with. During his 10th and 11th grade years at Briarcrest, so now we're talking 2002 until June of 2004, Michael often stayed at the home of, of the grandfather of another friend. And he had other individuals who he stayed with as well. He often stayed overnight at the homes of classmates who saw Michael as simply a decent, intelligent, polite young man who needed some basic support and no person, no parent, no agency or anything else in the social system, despite the fact that he was a ward of the state by virtue of being in social services custody, none of them provided him with uh, that support either. During the summer after his junior year, so now we're talking right before his senior year, uh, and he was probably at that point already 18 or turning 18 since the time period that we're going to be focused on in the few moments is 2004. And we know that in 2004, he was 18 because that's part of the whole issue with him being able to sign these documents himself. So during the summer of his junior year, Briarcrest, Michael also occasionally stayed with Sean and Leanne and Leanne Tui. So those are Mr. and Mrs. Blindside for the purposes of the movie. Uh, where other Michaels uh, of Michael's classmates saw him as simply a nice kid in need, according to Michael's attorneys. Sean and Leanne Tui saw him as something else. A gullible young man whose athletic talent could be exploited for their own benefit. Now, again, this is their words. Uh, their words as in Michael's current attorneys. So the Tuis at that point allowed him to live with them on a regular basis. And we saw that in the movie. So while there are some things that Michael takes grave issue with in the movie, essentially like showing him as some kind of barely literate doofus, um, the part as it relates to the Tuies doing this whole, we're taking you in, you're a part of our family thing, that part of it is fairly accurate. What is in contention, obviously, between them, not even so much the legal contention, but just between the Tuies and Michael on a personal level is why they did that. Whether it was about all of this, we love you, family, family, Christian love, all of that, because, you know, they had the church all wrapped up in this as well, or if it was something more sinister, which is essentially, we're going to play the white savior role, but it's really because we see the bigger picture, the larger potential of what you bring to the table. Now, I, I think we'd be remiss in not pointing out that the Tuies were not poor people. So, um, because I believed that and no matter what side of something you're on, and I think that some people are have already decided what side they're on about this, no matter what facts and circumstances are presented to them, 
at the very least, we need to, um, okay, that's something else. At the very least, it is only fair to note that the Tuis, uh, at least by all accounts, were not poor. They were not looking <laughs> for, uh, for money at that point. So, you know, which is something they're going to constantly point out in an effort to defend themselves, of course. So anyway, um, uh, let's go on from there. He was a kid in need, etc. Okay, so they took him in and they took no action in juvenile court because at that point he, he must have been 17. They uh, So they took no action in juvenile court, which clearly they could have and might have even been good for everybody involved because uh, you have somebody living with you um, let's say they get sick or something. You just want to be able to make sure they're taken care of. Welcome everybody to the room. Make sure that you are sharing this. Make sure you are sharing the podcast. Make sure that, um, uh, why did he wait to say anything? Okay. That's from Nick B and the prod and the podcast. Okay. So Nick B, um, we're going to get into that, but one thing I will, uh, we'll get deeper into that, but uh, just to answer that briefly right now, I will say that since the movie came out, so this movie came out in 2009, since the movie came out, Michael has been consistent in going out and telling anybody who would listen how much he did not agree with the way that he was portrayed in the movie and that he had some issues with the Tuies. Now, there may have not been at that point uh, questions really, I mean, he may have had some questions about the money, but he may not have questioned it as deeply initially uh because of course at that time he was also still actively playing football and i'm not suggesting that just because he was playing football and receiving an nfl salary that he still shouldn't be gathering all funds that he feels are rightfully due to him no matter what the sources or the amount because if it's yours it's yours and especially if not only is it uh is this money being made from your NIL, name, image, and likeness, which we are definitely going to talk more about in a few moments, but even more importantly, your NIL, your name, image, and likeness is largely being used by other people who may be being uh, compensated well beyond what you are being compensated, and even more so that they are using your name, image, and likeness in a way that is embarrassing to you because that is one of the things that really bothered him is um, that it was embarrassing to him. Okay, so T, I see you. You want to come on live and I'd love to add you to it, but before I do, I've got to see some beans and some gifts. Okay, so, um, so anyway, back to the question on the pod. Uh, so Nick B, uh, I hope that answers your question at least for now. But I think as I continue through, you'll get even more meat to that discussion as well. So stick with us. All right. So 
in July 20 in July 2004 I, I want to say 2024 so bad <laughs> so in July 2004 Michael became an adult I don't know his birthday but I'm a July baby too so hey what's up Michael so he became an adult so now we're talking about the time frame from the end of his junior year when they apparently allowed him to start living with them on a more, more regular basis until the beginning of his uh until the beginning of his senior year and it does speak to some very interesting things the fact that they didn't just go ahead and seek some kind of legal custody or guardianship of him while he was a minor now of course i'm sure his people uh, i'm sorry the Tui's people may come back and say look if he had just started living with them towards the end of his junior year even if they wanted to they there just simply wouldn't have been any time by the time we started um by the time they got ready to start the process in juvenile and domestic relations court which is what we call it here in uh, my state it, he would have been turning 18 anyway, which would have then make them have to look at this another way. And um, the judge probably would have been like, okay, we're not dealing with a custody case anymore because he's an adult. So what are we going to do now? Okay. So the Tuies, as we know, and if you watch the movie, you also know, thank you for the hearts. Let's see you guys get those cards up. I'm clapping it up for you all. Let's see you get those hearts up. And gifts, I'm going to friend another random person. I am going to follow Maury, which also means Maury is going to get a gift once I go off the air, because it's hard for me to do all that button pressing right now. Okay, so... In July 2004, after he became an adult, but still enrolled as a student in Briarcrest right before his senior year, this is after a summer of them taking him on trips, buying him clothes, all of those things. Everybody, I hope you're sharing this page because once I get through this, I will be taking your legal questions live, whether it's about the cases that we're talking about or something else in your neck of the woods or even in your own life. Okay, so the Tuies invited Michael to come and live with them. And we, we, again, we saw all of this in the movie. According to Michael's petition, this, because what we're reading for those who may have just popped in is the petition to dismiss the conservatorship. Okay, at no time prior to this invitation during Michael's minority, which is when he was still a child, did the Tuies take any legal action to assume custody of Michael from DHS through appropriate channels, nor did they seek to become his guardian while he was still a minor. Despite their inaction, they did tell Michael they loved him and that they intended to legally adopt him. I'm going to start here really quickly and just just to give this little factoid before we continue on so that you keep it in the back of your mind. Adult adoption is currently and was indeed in 2004 legal in Tennessee. It's legal in a lot of places, but Tennessee is one of them and Tennessee is where they were. So I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, Michael believed them 
was delighted to be a part of a real and stable family and trusted Mr. and Mrs. Tui completely. The Tuies even encouraged Michael to refer to them as mom and dad, and Michael happily complied. Now, again, this is Michael's petition, so everything that we're reading is from Michael's perspective. And welcome again to everybody that's joining. Let's see those likes. Let's see those hearts, those beans, those gifts. Okay, and for those on the podcast, if you just popped in, I am also recording live on Bego as we do this podcast. Almost immediately after Michael moved in, the Tuies presented him with what he understood to be legal papers that were necessary or that were a necessary step in the adoption process. Michael trusted the Tuies and signed where they told him to sign. What he signed, however, and unknown to Michael until February 2023, now again, this is Michael's contention, was not adoption papers or even the equivalent of adoption papers. It was a petition for appointment of conservators, which were filed in this case or in this cause, which is what they're trying to get overturned or trying to get dismissed on August 9, 2004 by Deborah Brennan, an attorney of record in this matter. So she was the attorney for the Tuies. In fact, Ms. Brennan was so close to the Tuie family that Michael was re- encouraged to refer to her as Aunt Debbie. And Aunt Debbie comes popping in and out through several more times. We're going to hear about some stuff with Aunt Debbie. The petition filed on behalf of the Tuies, Michael, and his mother, Denise Ower, um, with Ms. Brennan as the attorney of record for everybody. So there was no separate attorney, nor was there a GAL, and I'll get to that in a moment. For all petitioners included a request that the conservators have total control over Michael Ower's ability to negotiate for or enter any contract, despite the fact that he was over 18 years of age and had no diagnosed physical or psychological disability. That clause is very important because when you are seeking a conservatorship over someone, that is typically what the case is, whether it's because they're a minor or whether there is some physical disability that impedes their ability to function in a way that would make them competent to take care of themselves as both from a basic needs standpoint, as well as from the standpoint of being able to make and enter contracts because you, you just don't want somebody being taken advantage of. These are individuals who under the law are considered vulnerable entities or vulnerable individuals. So psychological disabilities as well, same thing, that's self-explanatory. So Michael had none of these, but he was young and certainly young enough to be taken advantage of, certainly young enough to fall for the okie doke. So so we get it, right? We we know what we're dealing with here. Okay. So give me one second. I'm just making sure that 
Okay, just a minor station break, even for the people who are on the podcast. Just had to take care of just a tech issue. Okay, so the petition states in part, and again, this is from Michael's filing last week, that the best interest of the said Michael Jerome Williams Jr. will be served by this court, granting until the said Sean A. Tui and wife Leanne Tui the full co-legal custody guardianship and conservatorship of the said Michael Jerome Williams Jr., that they shall have all powers of attorney to act on his behalf, and that the said Michael Jerome Williams Jr. shall be allowed to enter into any contracts or bind himself. Well, I'm sorry, shall not be allowed to enter into any contracts or bind himself without the direct approval of his guardians, conservators. That the said Michael Jerome Williams Jr. will further not be allowed to make medical decisions for himself and that the said guardians, conservators, shall be full and complete authority to make medical and educational decisions on his behalf, educational, super important, on his behalf and have full and complete access to all his medical and school records in the same vein as had they been his natural parents and guardians. Uh, There's some very confusing language there, in my opinion, because on the one hand, this is clearly a conservatorship. All the documentation says so. Hell, the heading on the document says so. And the court speaks through its orders. That is just standard legalese. So that being the case, the court speaks through his orders. It's conservator, conservator, conservator. We're all over this. I do think that there is some messy language in here as it relates to adding custody and, well, guardianship and conservatorship, you know, or tend to be used interchangeably. However, when you talk about it in terms of saying that last sentence, um, them being treated as if they were his natural parents and guardians, when this is a conservatorship and the person, as in uh, the person complaining at this point, the complainant, uh, Michael Orr, saying that he was confused and that they deliberately duped him essentially into believing that this was akin to an adoption when it was actually conservatorship. I do think that there is some some arguments to be made as it relates to the Tuies, as it relates to this language, that they did not deliberately mislead him into believing that they were stepping into a position akin to being his parent or guardian, which is what someone adopting you would do, but that the language used by the court that the language signed off on the court kind of made it appear that way. They could simply say or argue, I'm not saying that they would win, but it's certainly an argument to be made, especially when you don't have much else to go on, that it was never our intention to be anything other than his conservators, but the language that was put into the order whether drafted by Auntie Brenda or not, 
the court signed off on language that could lead anybody to go back and look at that, whether they are 18, 25, or 37, as Michael is now, to believe that they intended to become his guardians. So anyway, let's go further. At no point did the Tuies inform Michael that they would have ultimate control of all his contracts. And as a result, Michael did not understand that if the conservatorship was granted, he was signing away his right to contract himself. Michael was falsely advised by the Tuies that because he was over the age of 18, that the legal action to adopt Michael would have to be called a conservatorship because it was, for all intents and purposes, an adoption. Now, this is where the Tuies get a little, but because of things they did subsequent, the argument that they could have made to overcome this they basically shot themselves in the foot. The reason is because the Tuies, of course, are going to say, we never said that. We never told him that a conservatorship was the same thing as an adoption. So if you do this, you are still our booby booby, lovey lovey, baby baby. And so essentially, we coerced him into signing it by telling him that something was what it wasn't. They're going to say, we never said that. Obviously. Duh. That would be great from a he said, she said argument standpoint. If there has not been various instances where the Tuies themselves on record have referred to him as their adopted son, including on a website for their foundation that was still up as recently as a week before this was filed. It's always great when you can say, well, I said this. Well, I didn't say this. Well, yes, you did, whatever. And it just looked like this. And, and the judge will go, well, you know what? I, I don't know. And I'm looking at the totality of the circumstances. It could have gone either way, in which case I can't find against the Tuies. But the Tuies screwed themselves as it relates to calling it an adoption. Now, how they got there, you know. But calling it an adoption definitely F themselves. So according to the complaint, which I've, we've all seen it, the Tuies have falsely and publicly represented themselves as the adoptive, and I'm sorry, petitions, not a complaint, uh, represented themselves as the adoptive parents of Michael, continuing to the date of filing of this petition. See, for example, the Tui family website and their foundation's website, where Michael's name and likeness is used to benefit the Tuies' interests, specifically in order for people to know who the hell the Tuies are, they've got to remind people that they are the parents from the blind side. And not just, you know, yeah, we're Michael, we're we're Michael Orr's parents. Michael Orr hasn't played football in a while. And even when he did, he was not like the, uh, you know, a big marquee player per se. So 
it they need to constantly keep saying the kid from the blind side the blind side the blind side we're the parents from the blind side so what does that mean that means they're constantly using his likeness on those websites so that when people go they know who they are and we know that that's what they're doing even if well i went to the websites but even if you didn't it's common sense that that's what they were doing because there are a gazillion foundations out there so what makes you stand out who there for you so we know that that's going on such false and public misrepresentations have caused irreparable injury loss and damage to michael orr and unless the conservators are restrained and enjoined from continuing to make such representations they will continue to cause further injury and damages referring to injury and damages is very important is very important in this petition and it is very important for the possibility of subsequent um uh, for subsequent litigation if these parties don't come to some kind of terms on all of this or even if this judge doesn't make a ruling uh, particularly as it relates to damages that michael and his attorney feel are adequate there's no question that the conservatorship is going to go away he filed the petition they're not going to contest the conservator be him being relieved from the conservatorship the real fight is going to come in regarding the next uh, regarding some of the issues that we're about to get in as it relates to the money specifically from what the blind side because the guy who wrote the book he's more or less free and clear as it results to that because he is the friend of Sean Tui. See, I always thought that it was Sean and it, Leanne and Sean, Leanne in particular, who wrote the book. And Leanne did write a book of her own subsequent to the movie. I mean, of course, capitalize on the popularity of the movie because you got to remember this movie made 330 plus million dollars. It was that's this was also in 2009. So once you factor in um uh, once you factor in uh inflation and i'll i'll even do it for you so because 330 million dollars did i say thousand not thousand million 330 million dollars now is a lot of money but three that 330 million dollars in 2009 with the inflation calculator yeah, it's even closer to a half a million dollars. When you uh, when you count, account for inflation, $330 million, $330 million is equivalent to $452 million today. So that's a lot of money at stake. And we're also talking about a situation where as we get in get even deeper into it, that um there's some back end money up against that 330 million dollars so stay tuned folks because it's bumpy and gets uglier okay so uh once again they go on about the lie and uh the conservatorship 
and the fact that he learned about the conservatorship specifically. Like he knew that there was some documentation that he signed. I think that's where people are confused about what he knew and what he didn't know, especially when people were like, well, how could you not know? And and I'm be and I'm gonna be honest, I said the same thing, especially considering that there are multiple contracts that Michael signed since 2004. And the Tuies were not involved in uh, most, if not all, of those contracts. I mean, again, 2009, all over it. Well, the, the movie came out in 2009, so the contracts and negotiations for all of that probably occur, occurred more along the lines of, I would imagine, 2007, 2008. He probably was still in school or right... Well, no, he had just got, by the time the movie had come out, we know that he had gotten drafted because they even flat uh, put that uh, flash to the end, um, the at the very end of the movie, you know, when like in any movie that is drawn from true events or an alleged true story, they will at the very end typically put pictures of the individuals or tell you what's going on with them now. And for those of us who have seen the movie, even when it was in theaters, I, I didn't see it in theater, but I did see it at the time. Um, they flashed on the screen when saying, okay, since this date, since this movie was filmed, this is what has happened. And they showed him being drafted. So, um, but based on just how we know the entertainment industry works, how long it takes to take movies, yada, yada. We know that um, he would have definitely still either been in school or in the process of being drafted, depending on whether or not he finished school. Um, and we're, we're actually getting to this point. So I am right. So he graduated from school, uh, he graduated from high school in the spring of 2005, and he entered uh, the University of Mississippi, Old Miss, which is the, um, uh, which is the alma mater of both Mr. and Mrs. Tuohy. Uh, he was on a football scholarship during his first year. He earned freshman All-American honors, and he also made the Dean's List his sophomore year. So in September 2006, The Blind Side, Evolution of the Game, this is the book, so not the movie, by Michael Lewis was released. It was based on the life of Michael Orr with the Tuies. So, and I think that that is what, at least for people like me, assumed uh, that's why many of us assumed, because I didn't read the book, I didn't even really care for the movie, um, that we assumed that the Tuohys were the ones who wrote this book. Again, I thought it was Leanne, since she was the one that you saw literally everywhere, um, both on the secular and, you know, definitely the heavy Southern Christian circuit. And, and of course, you know, when the movie came out and it became a huge, huge hit, then she was everywhere, like sitting right next to uh, Sandra Bullock half the time. So Michael Lewis, just so you know, is a childhood friend 
of Sean Tuies. So, yeah, right? Interesting. So he was a childhood friend of Sean Tuies, and he began contract negotiations immediately. Well, the conservators did, because at that point, book or no book, this is still my likeness. And it's not just their likeness, it's their kids' likeness, and of course, it's Michael's likeness that are in this movie. So at that point, okay, guys, on Bego, I am going to shut it down here. If you want to continue to listen, pop over to Podbean to listen live, or you can listen to this back on recording wherever you enjoy podcasts. Okay. All right. So now solely concentrating on you, my lovely, let's be honest with just Jonda listeners, because, you know, I love you guys. So we're going to, we're going to continue this story because it is a good one. And also I've got some, um, and, and also we're going to go through some recordings as well, because I think it's very telling of who and what um, unfortunately, uh, who and what uh, we're dealing with when it comes to not only the Tuies, but the types of individuals that they allowed to tell the story, so to speak. So let me find, um, give me one second. We're going to do the press conference. Okay. Recently. Oh my goodness. Okay. So anywho, now back to, uh, back to the, uh, the petition. Sorry about that. Uh, podcast listeners, uh, just consider it a commercial. (laughs) Okay. So see what happens when you listen live or when I rather, when I record live, you get to hear a little bit of everything. Okay. So the negotiations began. So that meant negotiating the rights for everybody in the family. So they negotiate 20th Century Fox negotiated with the Tuies for their minor children, Sean Jr. and Collins Tuie, who is the daughter, um, for the movie. And the Tuies also allegedly used their uh, status as his conservators to negotiate uh, for, based on his story and really not having to get his permission for how the story is told. Because remember, they were conservator for him over all contracts. So I do think that this part, it does get very sticky. Um, and it was sticky from the very beginning. Cause I know that I mentioned briefly the fact that there was no GAL involved. There can be a guardian at litem, even for adults. I have been a guardian at litem or guardian at litem, depending on where you live, um, in terms of how people pronounce it even for adults. And that is a person who is there to represent the best interests of the individual in question. That person has no loyalty to mama, papa, stepmama, anybody else. So I guess the best way to describe it, especially in a a situation like this, which is akin to 
sort of your average family law case, even though because this was a conservatorship, it was dealt with in probate court. But essentially, the best way to explain it is in a custody case, especially in contested custody case, um, a court can appoint, appoint a guardian at litem who is their job. And I am um, a court certified and appointed guardian at litem as well for both children and adults. They will appoint someone whose job it is to take the time to investigate the matter, investigate the parties, know about their lives, and essentially figure out what the heck is going on so that they can make a recommendation to the court based on what they feel is the best interest of that child now or even or an adult the best interest of that child or an adult may not be anything that anybody in the courtroom including the child or the adult with the the adult who uh, has a guardian agrees with because essentially what any of those folks want may not be best. Everything might not be honky-dory to give unfettered everything to mama or daddy. And, you know, that could, and if the kid has a preference, may not necessarily be what the guardian feels is best there. Now, does the guardian's opinion automatically trump absolutely not it is just another means of informing the court from someone who is supposed to be uh completely neutral because technically you don't represent anyone you represent the interests of someone but not anyone specifically so as guardian at Leadum for Michael in this situation, what would what would have been most important to me is to look at this from the perspective of what is best for Michael, not the Tuies, not well anybody, Mama Tui, Daddy Tui, or even Tui, or even his mother who was there apparently agreeing to all this as well. It would have simply been what. I felt was best for Michael. And no matter how much Michael may have loved the Tuies and trusted them, if I did not feel that giving them conservatorship over him, especially for an extended period of time that went beyond just getting him through the, through the school year, or into college, or even to just the uh, 21, then that's the recommendation I would have given to the court. And of course, the court can take it and go, okay, that's cute, and you know, toss it aside, or <clears throat> excuse me, give it serious consideration to the point of actually following. The recommend, uh, my recommendation or some version thereof. But do I think that there should have been another individual involved? And, and that's part of, and that there's a reason, obviously there's 
If you listen to me long enough, you know that I go off on tangents, but there's often a method to the madness. And in this case, there is a method to the madness because just like I think that he should have had a GAL for the uh, initial conservatorship case, he damn sure should have had an impartial attorney that was not uh, an, an attorney of his own preferably of his own choosing, although at that point he would have been a college student, so who knows what that would have been. And certainly someone who had no connection to the family, the conservatorship, etc. Now, was it up to the studio to make sure all those safeguards were in place? No. Would it, would it have been smart from the standpoint of not finding yourself being accused of uh, some type of coercion or collusion later on? Yes, but required? No. And they're there just to make the best deal that they can for the studio that hopefully gets them the rights to whatever it is that they're attempting to get the rights to and not paying much to get them. And for what they paid on the front end, uh, they didn't pay much. Um, and even what they gave up as uh, on the back end, they probably had no idea. I'm sure they didn't. Even with a bankable, marketable star like, uh, uh, why did her name just go out of my head? Like Sandra Bullock attached to it. There is no guarantee and, and quite frankly, I, I bet they were shocked that a movie, even one starring Sandra Bullock and uh, the country homie, um, that it would have grossed over $100 million, let alone over $300 million, when it was just your basic white savior story. We've had a million of those. You've got, I mean, you've got stuff like Dangerous Minds had already come out. How many stories about, you know, some white person saving the life of some black person or, you know, changing the trajectory of the downtrodden to turn them into this, this citizen or this wonderful person that everybody loved? Yeah, because black people sure as hell weren't down, weren't feeling it. I mean, yes, there were many who went, but there was just as many who was like, yeah, no. Now, we know studios don't often think about us until like maybe Wakanda and Girls Trip. But it, in 2009, no, unless the movie was starring Eddie Murphy, um, you know, in a fat suit. I don't think that anybody was pressed about what black people would do. So in that regard, was there any guarantee that you'd get all these white folks to go running out to see that? Even starring Sandy B? Not necessarily. I think even the 2.5 on the back end uh, may not sound like much, but is a hell of a lot when you factor in what the movie made. I just don't think that they believe the movie was going to be quite that successful. So anywho, back to the negotiations for a book that was essentially Michael's life story, but everybody had permission to tell it, whether it was uh, Sean Tui's homie or 
a 20th Century Fox film because Michael didn't have rights over his NIL to be, I'm sorry, uh, yes, over his NIL to begin with. So section 18 titled notices and payments of all four of the Tui family members contracts with 20th Century Fox list Matthew Snyder at Creative Arts Agency. So we're talking CAA. They actually had agency with CAA. That is huge. These people were nobodies. Yeah, they, they, they were wealthy, but in their own hometown, they weren't somebody in Hollywood. But the agency attorney to receive contract and payment notices for Michael is listed as Debbie Brandon Esquire, the attorney of record for the conservatorship. Aunt Debbie, the local family friend attorney, is the person who is listed as Michael's attorney in contact. You know, the person who drew up the conservatorship that everybody went along with and agreed to, including Michael, who claims, uh, and the more you read it, probably quite credibly, that at the time he didn't understand what he was signing. Now, we can argue all day long about this idea that he didn't fully understand the implications of that until February 2023, especially considering the fact that he has signed multiple contracts since then that the Tuies were not involved in. However, there is good reason to believe, especially based on the language used in the conservatorship documents themselves, that he would have been confused because you've got the language of a conservatorship in terms of the power that it gives the Tuies uh, in relation to Michael. But you also have language there that lends itself to the family court when you start talking about all of the rights, essentially all of the cash prizes, rights, and privileges of being his parent. So um, very interesting, but bottom line is uh, Miss Debbie, definitely uh, wrong move and yet another one that will probably bite them in the ass with her, sorry, had to take a sip for my throat there, with her being the person, um, uh, her being the attorney of record for his side of the conservatorship. Okay, so upon information and belief, conservators negotiated for themselves and natural born children a contract price of 225000 plus 2.5 of all future defined net proceeds. All payments were contingent upon Fox first acquiring Michael's signature. Upon information and belief, the Blindside movie has amassed gross revenues of more than $330 million and still earns large sums of money. I don't know if it earns large sums of money, but I'm sure it's uh, since then, but I'm sure it's earned something. But I don't think anybody's racing through the streets to pick up to watch the blind side. Well, maybe now. Um, uh, what I do think is that perhaps they when they talk about large sums of money, they may be talking about um, any potential um, amount that can be specifically attributed to the value of 
the blind side if it was a part of any streaming deal, even if it was a part of a bulk of uh, movies that 20th Century Fox or whomever owns them now, owns it now, I don't know if they still do, uh, that 20th Century Fox, um, any deal they made with perhaps a streaming service or even something overseas that would have in involved the blind side by itself or the blind side, blind side, I'm saying the blind side, the blind side along with a bunch of other movies. And whether it is a single deal or a package deal, it's not hard for anybody who does this work to do an accounting to determine how much of that value, specifically if it was a part of a bulk deal, um, how much of the value is to be attributed to the blind side versus all the other movies that may have been a part of that deal. So I could see that. A contract also exists entitled Life Story Rights Agreement, purportedly signed by Michael Orr, dated April 20th, 2007. And guys, you got to remember, if he left for college in the, in, you know, he started college in August, September of 2005. In April of 2007, he would have only been a second semester sophomore. Now, granted, because of, you know, the delays with him going to school because of how his educational experience started out, he was 19 instead of 18 when he left for college. So he would have been uh, 20 in April of 2007. But we are still talking about a 20-year-old kid who is a sophomore in college and a young man who while he may have been academically sound certainly did not have um a, the stability of an upbringing that wouldn't have made him easy prey which is essentially what unfortunately he, he seemed to be on several fronts because like i said i'm still not feeling briarcrest in all of this either even before we get to the damn uh twoies and probably quite a few others that he's come into contact with that you know bless his heart and maybe just um it's just the type of person that he is especially given that he has a reputation for being a nice guy that he just tries to see the good in people and their interactions with him. And I like that for him because it, Lord knows if after everything that he went through from starting at such a young age, if he were to sit back and really, um, I guess, really break down, for want of a better way of putting it, all of the people in his life and what their motives really may have been at any given time, he would probably go nuts. He would certainly be sad as hell. Okay, so we know that his life rights, gone. Because those between whatever with 20th Century Fox or 
um, whatever, or the conservatorship with the Tuies. Either way, he's got nothing. So that was signed 20 years old, April 20, April 2007. And it appears that he gives away to Fox without any payment, because if there's payment, it's going to say it in the contract, basic contract law, offer acceptance consideration, considerations to cash. The perpetual, unconditional, and exclusive right throughout the world to use and portray Michael Orr's name, likeness, voice, appearance, personality, personal experiences, incidents, situations, and events based upon or taken from Michael Orr's life story in connection with motion pictures and otherwise from the dates mentioned in the, in the Blindside book through the end of the 2008 NFL draft and non-exclusive rights to his life after the 2008 NFL draft. Okay, so I said a lot. Let me just drill that down for you. Very simple. That one document gave 20th Century Fox two uh, rights to his entire NIL, his name, image, and likeness in every conceivable way from the time frame of that the book refers to, which is when he was a young man, all the way through to him being drafted in 2008, because as I mentioned, there is um, a portion in the movie where they put that in there because probably while they were in the process of making the movie, as I mentioned earlier, he was in the process of being drafted because the timing sort of works out. It looks like um, if he went into the NFL draft, then that would have been the end of his junior year. So that's about right. This, um, for the guys who don't uh, finish school or maybe finish school later, junior year is right around that time where they feel like they're, they've hit the money spot in terms of foregoing that senior year and trying their hand at the, uh, trying their hand at going into the draft. Um, especially if uh, they've got people around them uh, who are like, uh, this is your year strike while the iron's hot. So, the non-exclusive rights means that after the 2008 draft, they still have a right to use his image and likeness. However, it is non-exclusive, which means that he or whomever else he assigns can also use his name, image, and likeness. So exclusive up to 2008, not exclusive after 2008. So let's say he wanted to uh, make his own version of a, a movie of his own version of his life prior to 2008. Looks like 20th Century Fox has got that. Now he can, he can try to tell other parts of his life. Like they would literally have to go and splice through the book and make sure that anything that he refers to in his movie telling of his life story doesn't hit on those same topics, incidents, etc. Unless he has 20th Century Fox's permission 
and or they're willing to void that contract. So, and, and will they do it? Who knows? You know, given the publicity around this and the fact that there are some big time questions that now don't exactly put 20th Century Fox in the greatest light either um, about how all of this went down. And, you know, it's it it comes off. The bottom line is the twoies are not the only ones who appear predatory in these negotiations, if you can even call it that, in 2007. And so would the smart money for, or at least from a public relations standpoint, if 20th Century Fox even gives a damn, because they probably don't, but if they actually gave half of a damn about it, or wanted to preemptively avoid a potential lawsuit later on, they might want to reach out to him and say, look, we already got what we wanted out of this. We got the movie. We wanted exclusive rights because obviously if we are doing a movie, we can't have somebody out running around out there doing the same damn movie. Or telling the same damn story. But considering that we have milked this for half a million dollars at least, then you know what? Take it. Go in peace. If you manage to make fetch happen with the same story after we've already milked it dry, or your own version of the story, which he may have drummed up some interest in uh, because of all of this, so be it. But, at least for now, hmm. Now, let's see. Michael Orr believes the signature on this document is very similar to his own, and he does not know whether the signature was forged. Okay, he may have been cited. I am so sorry, everybody. He may have been signing a lot of things at that time. So in fairness, he's not saying he didn't sign it. He's just saying he's not sure. He said he does know and hear averse that he at no time ever willingly or knowingly signed this document and that nobody ever presented, this is the way it's written, guys. Nobody ever presented this contract to him with any explanation that he was signing such a document or any document concerning his rights to his name, image, and life story to Fox or anybody else. Okay, again, drilling that down for you. This is one of those, you're kind of buying yourself several arguments to make. On the one hand, you don't want to say totally outright that you didn't sign it because clearly his attorneys by now have looked at both documents, uh, have looked at all of the documents that he has signed, and they probably feel comfortable enough because they even said it from his perspective that the signatures look similar. Um, so could possibly be signed by the same person. Because of that, they are not willing to say on the record that Michael 
that this document was forged because now that this petition has been filed and this allegation has been made, you run the risk of somebody coming forward saying, oh, he absolutely did sign it. I was there like I, you know, I'm the person who <clears throat> called me an asshole or not. I'm the person who negotiated it and I'd stake my license on it as an officer of the court. Absolutely. He freaking signed it. Nobody forged his name. Again, we didn't know that we were going to make as much money off of this stupid ass story. So we had no reason to just be stealing some random dudes NIL. We're a major movie studio. So because of that, because that would be the argument from the other side and a very powerful one, because of that, they are buying themselves some wiggle room to say, okay, he may not have signed it. However, if we're forced to accept that he did sign it, he did not willingly and knowingly sign that in that form, in a, in a manner that he understood that was what he was signing. Whatever it was that he signed was not presented to him in that way, whether by Aunt Debbie or by one of the studio heads or by the Tuies who just gave him a stack of stuff saying, we're going to make a movie, sign the stuff. And at that time, because we're talking 2007, they were still good because Mama Tui was standing with him and Daddy Tui and the kids were standing with him on the field when he got drafted in 2008. So in 2007, they were still good. He apparently still trusted them. He did not fully embrace until seeing the movie and how it was really put on screen the level of trifling that was at play with how he was going to be portrayed. So at that point, he's still good with them. So it was standard reason he would be good with Aunt Debbie and or anybody else that was involved that threw some papers under his nose. Hey, you're getting ready to go to the NFL in another year or so. You are blowing up. You are the king of Ole Miss. Football's going great. Most likely you're going to be a pro player. We're your family. We love you. And on top of it, they're making a movie about this amazing miracle life that we have all created together. Allegedly. All right. So what he is saying is to the extent that the co-conservators in any way facilitated the signature, Michael Orr, um, on this unconscionably, which is one of my favorite words, but it's the middle of the night in terms of me saying it, unfair document, whether by forgery, trickery, or otherwise, or even if they simply knew about it and allowed this, misjustice, uh, this miscarriage of justice to occur, whereby the co-conservators and their children would reap millions of dollars while co-conservators ward would receive nothing, they would have committed a breach of their fiduciary duty so gross and appalling that they should be sanctioned by this court by disgorgement of all sums of money received from the motion picture, plus interest from the date of receipt of any payment, and also required to pay appropriate punitive damages to their ward, Michael Orr, as determined by this court. Powerful statement. 
also very important because now we're talking about money because everybody is so quick to say oh he's just asking that the conservatorship goes away in foreign accounting yes but he is also asking in the same way that you would in a regular civil lawsuit for the judge to slap them around with some uh with some penalties specifically punitive ones which is where the big money is um and of disgorgement huge huge that they're asking for that which would have simply which is again layman's terms your behavior was so outrageous not to mention the fact that you all were supposed to be watching out for him that's what a fiduciary duty was that's what a fiduciary duty is. And you were so far outside of that, that there is no question that you all should not be entitled to anything, which means everything you got for that movie, turn it over. So Mr. Tui, when you're saying, why would I want that little blindside money, this and that, a third, I'm, I'm rich. I'm worth over $200 million after selling my fast food franchises. Okay, then pay up. Because we do know that no matter how much you all made, now was still ignorant because it was more than what he made. But technically... 225,000 plus 2.5% on the back end and any residuals that would have come accordingly are still nowhere near the alleged $200 million that you claim that you are worth. In fact, it's probably barely even 10. So if you big willy like that, give him the 10 give him 10 in fact give him the 15 that you claim he tried to extort extort from you because if the court goes with this disgorgement theory and you know of course gives the money back that you all made from the movie which is you know probably maybe five million at most but 10 being extremely generous that doesn't mean that they aren't going to slap you with a punitive uh, punishment as well if they are as disgusted by Michael's side of the story as so many people are, and most importantly, not just disgusted by his side of the story, but actually believe his side of the story and believe it and are disgusted by it to a point where they feel that there needs to be legal repercussions flowing from it. So since, again, since you big daddy, you big money, we don't need nothing from no studio. What's $20,000? You know, the nonsense that he spoke last week that in my first discussion of this, I was like, he needs to shut the F up. Um, if that's the case, Give him $5 million and, and he'll probably go away. I mean, of course, get rid of the conservatorship as well. Give him $5 million so he'll go away. In fact, as a further show of good faith, send out those attack dog lawyers of yours and let them so that they can go and speak to 20th Century Fox. And if 20th Century Fox aren't willing to just sign over 
the rights or or just you know basically say yeah we don't need this shit anymore buy them back i mean how much can it really be worth sure it may have his his life rights may have gone up in value this week because of all of this and and the drama that's going on but in the grand scheme of things yeah compared to most other people even most other football players like i'm talking marquee names of course not not that much so the movie was released in 2009 well after he had used all his ncaa eligibility at ole miss so that wasn't an issue because any money he would have received from the blind side um would have uh, it would have recurred but if it had occurred while he was still in school, it would have affected his NCAA eligibility, especially since at that time, um, unlike the changes that are uh, taking place now, players didn't have a right to their uh, name, image, and likeness that belonged to the universities that they signed on to for the duration of their time at those universities. Thankfully, that is changing. Well, it has changed. It's just the implementation of it is a bit slow. Due to the massive, massive success of the movie, Alcon Entertainment, LLC, the successor to Fox, and again, I still say they probably did not see that success coming. Um, and by the way, it looks like Alcon Entertainment LLC uh, is owns it now. Um, I don't know if they bought the entire Fox catalog, but apparently they do own this movie, which is why they're mentioned. Um, they made a donation to Leanne Tui's foundation, the Making It Happen Foundation, in the amount of $200,000 on October 10th, 2010 in the name of Sean Tui. Well, if it's a foundation, I wonder if it was 501c3 because is there some tax implications as it relates to that? Hmm. Upon information and belief, this payment was triggered by an amendment to life story rights agreement of Sean Tui. And at no time did conservators, Alcon Entertainment, or Fox inform Michael of the amendment or negotiations thereon, nor was there any amendment attempted to ensure that Michael would benefit from the movie's, movie's success in contravention of the duties that the Tuies had to Michael as his conservators. Now, it is my understanding that we know that Leanne has written at least one book subsequent to this, um, subsequent to the movie coming out, maybe even more, but I believe that Sean Tuie has also written uh, a book or books as well, maybe not even having anything to do with the blind side, uh, in the same way as the book that he was originally okay with his friend writing, but probably um, because of the fact that it would have at least touched on those parts of his life because um, that time period was somewhat significant, I suppose, uh, in his life, maybe, who knows. But if he, but the bottom line is, if he had any intention 
Um, and in 2010, obviously, they were still riding on the blindside wave. But if he had any intention of going around making speeches or uh, maybe thinking ahead to the future of potentially writing a book or anything like that, then it would have been important for him to amend uh, the life story rights agreement as it relates to himself. Because again, if he told any part of this story, even in relation to his own life, without either their permission or some type of an, some type of an agreement with them, then he would have been in breach of his own NIL agreement in whatever form that took uh, when he signed one. Because they all signed one. The only question is how sweeping each person was. Like I would imagine that the kids theirs was pro were pro was probably not as sweeping as Michael's because they were private citizens. So, um, and you know, they weren't, neither of them were involved in the entertainment industry or anything like that at the time. So I suspect that theirs was probably fairly limited exactly to, to the exact time period. And also remember they had a big time representation because they were being represented by somebody from CAA. So they had somebody who definitely knew what they were doing to make sure that they didn't screw themselves over. Okay, so now we're going into a little bit of the background, but procedurally, but I'll make it really quick, but there are some really interesting interconnections here. So in December, 2000, uh, in December 7, 2004, the judge did finally grant the petition, ordering them as conservators of the person. Now, I, of course, when we talked about this in the first episode, thought that they were, because of all of the information, at least the information we had at that time, where it was only discussing the contracting and the money, I assumed that this was not as sweeping as the conservatorship that Britney Spears's parent uh, father had over her, but apparently it was because it's an order appointing conservators of the person, which makes a determination that he is in need of supervision, protection, and assistance, and he could not make contract decisions on his own. And so when you get to the pertinent parts about that, which is why I said it was quite sweeping, is that he not only was he not allowed, they said that he shouldn't be allowed to enter any contracts or bind himself on uh, without direct approval, but it also goes into medical decisions and them having a, and educational decisions. Oh, miss, ding, 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 ding. So when you get into that, that's pretty sweeping. Now we're not just talking about money. See, now, Wendy Williams, just money, especially since there's a bank involved and all that, because then who are you to get involved in her medical care? This is very much more akin to the Britney Spears one, because now we're talking about even your medical decisions, your educational decisions. I mean, hell, if you got control over my money 
medical and education, my money, my medical situation and my educational decisions. Um, and, and at that time, obviously he was in school. So education is, you know, that's your job. That's your life. You pretty much own me. So the duration of the conservatorship. Now, the original durations, it says it is Michael's desire. Okay. Unless it was cousin Brenda's desire or Aunt Brenda that the petitioners be recognized as his legal guardians at least until he reaches the age of 25 or until terminated by order of this court prior to that time. Despite that prayer, the court appointed the Tuies as conservators to serve in that capacity until further orders of the court terminating the conservatorship. So, this allegedly asked for legal guardianship, but they were made conservators and it went well beyond the ask because they asked, allegedly this asked for until 25, this essentially gave it to them permanently unless they, until the court actively ordered otherwise, which would typically be you know, if the person comes and, and files a petition and say, hey, take this shit off of me. The probate court shows that there was a waiver of bond, so no money had to be put down. And the certificates was it was the certificate was issued on December 7, 2004. There's been no subsequent order, nor have they ever filed anything to try to stop the conservatorship. Also, per the requirements of the Tennessee Code, they're supposed to file yearly accountings. They did not. They never even, not only did they never file it, they never even filed uh, any extensions to say, oh, we didn't, we forgot, let's do it. Now, arguably, they'll say, well, in that first couple of years, we didn't really think about it because, if anything, money was going out as opposed to coming in. You know, he got a scholarship. to He was a kid. He lived with us. We're taking care of him. Then he goes off to Ole Miss. He has a scholarship, but the school is essentially paying themselves with the scholarship. And anything else that he was doing great for the school was benefiting the school. So... We got nothing. And since at that time, um, college athletes had no control over their name, image, and likeness, again, nothing. However, once we get to those blindside years and all the years since then, well, now we've got a problem because you have just flat out not followed the rules of this conservatorship. And even if the conservatorship is terminated, just like you see in the ongoing conservatorship saga with Britney Spears, the issues as it relates to the accountings, what came in, what went out, who, what, and why do not go away. These things still must be done, especially if Michael and or the court are continuing to ask for them because 
in this case in particular, we know unequivocally that money was made. And money was unequivocally made off of his image, his likeness, his story. Doesn't matter who told it or how many people participated in it. Ultimately, he is the central figure. There is no story without him. So conservators have never filed any required, quote, statement of fiduciary as to physical or mental condition of the disabled person, unquote, which also means you have to file a document showing that this person is continuing to need this conservatorship. They have not done it per requirements. Court hasn't enforced it either. And the judge, somebody went and found him, and of course he put it all on the clerk. We don't have time to pay attention to all of that. It only it only becomes an issue most of the time if the clerk notices it and, and brings it up. Okay, well, we saw that coming. And to be honest, that's that to, to be honest with you folks, that's not unusual. It's just not. It's unfortunate, but nowhere near unusual. That's not a Michael Orr and a Tui's issue. That's just the way that the system works. Conservators never sought to have the conservatorship modified to appoint other parties or anything due to the plain conflict that would and did arrive, arise between the parties uh, as it relates to their fiduciary duty um, and, of course, their own uh, personal financial in, uh, interest as it relates to the movie. Since at least August of 2004, they have allowed Michael specifically and the public generally to believe that conservators adopted Michael. So we know that part. We don't have to repeat that part. It's unnecessary. He's capable of handling his own affairs. This man is married. He's got kids. He's had a whole career. Um, and in truth, uh, he did handle whether himself or uh, I'm sure he had an agent, um, an attorney. I mean, actually, those things are required um, by the league. So he and his team negotiated um, his contracts, uh, multiple contracts over uh, multiple years and to several teams because uh, he played in Baltimore the longest. And then I believe he was in Tennessee for a hot minute. And maybe I think he might have ended his career in North Carolina, but he, he Baltimore was first. And like I said, the longest. Okay, so he says that the conservatives should be discharged. Of course they should. And they're claiming that they're fine with that. Um, the conservatives should be terminated. And because of their failures, he's not under any disability. No issues with that. Um, and a lot of this just goes into the law behind it all, what the breach is, etc. Um, the request for relief. Um, the Chancery and Circuit Court judge, Circuit Court having jurisdiction for any action arising out of this. Um, let's see. May be reasonable to prevent or restrain unauthorized use of his name, uh, name, image, and likeness. We already know that. And the court may authorize the confiscation of, confiscation of all unauthorized items seized 
everything that is out there in violation of his rights and liquidation to satisfy any damages if the court feels that damages should be recovered. Um, and, and literally everything, right down to master tapes, recordings, all of that. Um, they talk about the fact that he is continuing to suffer damages because of the misuse of his name, image, and likeness. There's no question that is being misused. People can agree to disagree as it relates to the movie itself and how he was portrayed in that. And when I say people, I mean him and the Tuies and anybody else involved in that in terms of them feeling like, no, we didn't actively portray you as a big dumb oaf and him saying, yes, I do feel like you did. Well, I think that that is one of those things that um, will just be, I, I don't think that that necessarily gets them anywhere legally. But what we do know is that um, they've pretty much helped to make his arguments regarding the false claims about the adoption because their dumbasses keep saying that that's what happened when clearly it is not. And so, of course, he's asking, so what is he asking for? The sworn accounting? Because they owe it. Um, and that's for all monies and all of that. The paying over the sums relieved, uh, received by them, any of them, which ha should have been paid over to him, plus interest, and that the court sanction them for their misconduct, which I talked about earlier, and require them to pay such compensatory and punitive damages to uh, their said ward as this court finds appropriate. And we also talked about disgorgement earlier. And of course, to pay all of his attorney fees incurred. Um, and that reason is simple. I wouldn't have these attorney's fees if it wasn't for me having to chase you all. And even if the court doesn't, uh, if, if the court does not provide him with or, or order that they pay him attorney's fees for bringing this petition, because technically either of them could have brought this petition at any time and ignorance of the law or even your status under the law when the information was readily available to you at any time um, is not enough to say uh, that well, I'm, I'm doing this because they didn't do that or what have you. Um, he said that he didn't even realize it. So there are things that probably couldn't have gotten as out of control had he um, been knowledgeable about his uh, legal status and acted accordingly earlier. And... I don't think it's unreasonable for the ORS attorney because you guys, you know, here I, I try to uh, give play devil's advocate for both sides. Um, I, I don't think it's unreasonable for the ORS attorney to come back at him and say, look, um, you could have mitigated your own potential damages in this in terms of the alleged year after year you what you weren't receiving accountings or year after year that um money should have been coming to you instead of to them and now this case has got you know even once 
the conservatorship is terminated, we will be back in, in court 50, 11 times for umpteen years of um, unfiled statements or accountings because you didn't mitigate your damages sooner. Now, is the court going to go along with that? Probably not. Because at the end of the day, yes, if he was, again, paying attention or using the many attorneys he's probably had over the years, even for his football stuff, to know and understand his own legal status, then which the court is not going to give him any pass on not knowing, um, then this situation may not have gotten us out of hand. However, the ors are the ones who put this whole thing in place. So they are absolutely going to bear the larger brunt of the responsibility for several reasons. One, you put this in place and you knew you were his conservators. You knew it so much that money was being sent to you, which you admittedly tried to give to him. He allegedly didn't take it and you allegedly put it in trust for his son. All the more reason why you absolutely knew you had this status because there was money being sent to you that you knew, whether legally or, or freaking morally, that was that rightfully belonged to him, which is why allegedly, and we still don't know if that's true, that's what their lawyer said, which is why allegedly you tried to turn it over to them. Now, the other piece to all of that is... Um, it, just the mere fact that you didn't file the accountings. Yes, he isn't uh, incurring uh, adding to his attorney fees for having to chase you back and forth the court to do it, kind of like Britney Spears lawyers having to keep dragging um, her father and all the rascally ras uh, rabbits and cohorts that were involved in just blatant highway robbery from her over the past, you know, 10 years or so. Um, but they wouldn't have to do that if you had either A, terminated the conservatorship, or B, even if you kept the conservatorship for no real reason that anybody can understand other than stealing from him. <laughs> but if you claim that wasn't the case, then at the very least, you could have been filing the accountings, even if the accountings simply said zero. But if you were filing the accountings, then it would have also made sense for you to be filing the statement of on of his ongoing need. And if you had filed statements of his ongoing need to have a conservator and those things, as well as the accountings, were CC'd and properly sent to him. Oh, that that courthouse would have been lit up which is why you didn't do it, which is why a judge is not going to be empathetic to however many hundreds of thousands of dollars in lawyer's fees he racks up and asks you to pay, which you'll probably have to pay. And you know what? So be it. Because they, even once this is terminated, which is uh, which the Owers attorneys said they have no problem doing and the Owers are fine with, there's still all these other layers that have to be dealt with as it relates to the money. 
it doesn't just die with the conservatorship. Now, I was going to play uh, the Ower's attorney's um, press conference verbatim, uh, but we went on longer than I had initially expected. So what I am going to do, because I still want to sort of keep my promise, is I am going to put a link to that press conference. It's, it's, a, it's from YouTube. It's only about 10 minutes. I'm going to put a link to that press conference in the description for this episode because it is interesting and it is very telling of the mindset of the oars both then and now, especially in terms of what they allege they were doing that still seems to be out of line versus what actually went on here. And just the condescension and um, there's this real racism-like stuff that uh, has gone on in this case and uh, definitely seemed to reek in this situation as well. So um, I'm so like I said, it's a link. It's not very long. I'm going to put it in the comments from uh, for this episode, and it's just a uh, it's just a press conference. It's from the AP. So off of that, really quick, and because I did promise more gossip, and I know we're at the two hour mark, so you're gonna be like, oh my god, she's got more. Only a few minutes more because it's uh, we're at an hour forty eight. So. Quick and dirty, Britney Spears. Britney Spears is, uh, looks like she and her current husband, Sam, are headed for divorce. Now, while she has only been married for a year, I want to point out to you all the same thing that I pointed out to people on my page. Um, well, on the, on the Fashion and Drama Diaries, where we talk about stuff every day on Facebook, that Britney Spears and uh, Sam, don't get me to say his last name, and actually uh, I had already set my notes to the side. It's, it's, we're going to call him Sam A. They were actually together for seven years coming into this marriage, or maybe six years and then this was seven years. First of all, just under the best of circumstances, statistically most relationships uh, only last about eight years, specifically marriages. It just so happens that in their case, they were not married for most of their seven to eight years together. But these two had a very long relationship. And if I had to guess, I think it's a combination of things. Now, could there be, uh, uh, is there going to be some very telling um, behavior in the next probably few, uh, maybe even days let uh, or weeks as it relates to how he moves um, that lets us, gives us a little bit more insight into whether there is a bit of a money grab here, especially in the face of an alleged ironclad prenup and NDA agreement. I think that the proof will be in the pudding in that one. The actions that are taken are going to tell the story without us even having to ask questions. If there, if we hear that there is an attempt to uh, set aside the prenuptial agreement on the grounds that he was 
not properly represented, therefore not having a full understanding of his rights as it relates to the prenup, um, especially given that at the time he was like, I just love her. I just love her. I don't want anything from her, blah, 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 blah. So that will be very telling. If we also hear more of these alleged statements from friends, because remember, he's under an NDA, uh, statements from so-called friends and associates that she was allegedly physically abusive to him, then again, that also tells uh, puts us right back to telling a bit of a money grab story because um, physical abuse like anything like other extreme forms of behavior uh, would be a great way of invalidating um, a prenuptial agreement as essentially unconscionable because you're basically asking someone to walk away with, let's say their prenup says he got nothing. You're essentially asking somebody to walk away with nothing when you actively and violently were the reason that they had to leave because the court and just the law in general is not going to force you to stay married to someone who is abusing you just so that you don't lose your means of support. It, it just contravenes public policy in general. Um, so that would be a good way of getting uh, the prenup set aside, or at the very least, getting her to, uh, she and her team, to not only make an offer, um, but a big one. Now, the good thing is they have only been married for a year. So hopefully, if he has, um, if he has counsel that is trying to make a run at her for some, uh, but for an actual offer to make him go away and shut up, that they don't overshoot the ask and ask for something reasonable, considering that the marriage itself was only for a year, um, notwithstanding the six years that they were together, because at that point, that previous time, she was under a conservatorship and did not have any legal right to um, agree to anything, including um, taking care of a boyfriend and allowing him to be a uh, to become accustomed to a certain lifestyle. You chose to be with somebody who was the ward of someone else. Therefore, that person doesn't owe you shit. So what we are basing uh, what the offer should be based on, and and, and of course. Uh, Britney's offer to them, or them making some something of an ask that is reasonable, should take into account just that one year. Um, but I also the the other reason why I bring up the six years outside of the money is this may be a situation where you know people are love to say you know Britney crazy Britney's this and that and third again he was already with her. So this may be a situation where just like sometimes when people get sober, the person realizes that they that the person they're with is even more of an asshole than they were when they were drunk or high or just may not be interesting or fun at all. 
And this may be a situation where he is just not feeling we outside Brittany versus forcibly doped up working like an indentured servant, um, pitiful Brittany. And that's, that's just the reality of it because those are the two Britneys that he's had. And one he may simply not like very much. And, and that's fine. That's life. Life happens. So we're going to talk more about, uh, about that this week because I also have some thoughts uh, as it relates to K-Fed, the money, the kids, and all of that. So um, we're, we're definitely going to get more into that story. And then there was one more, but for the life of me, it must not be terribly interesting because it just went clean out of my head. I won't waste your time with uh, Noel Jones' uh, wife, Loretta, getting knocked out at the City of Refuge Church last Sunday because that is such a hot mess. It could be an episode unto itself. So I'm still investigating some information on that. Many of you may not even know who Bishop Noel Jones is. He is a pastor of a huge mega church in uh, Los Angeles. And he was also featured on a show several years ago, Preachers of LA, which is how some people may have um, come to know him as well. So uh, it's, it's, it's actually pretty crazy. And so we'll get into that later this week when we get into uh, more couple news. And of course, coming up, we have got to talk about these Trump indictments. We've got the Leah Remini case to talk about. So, so, so much more coming up uh, in the next, at least the next two or three episodes of Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda. Thank you very much for sticking around and hanging with us. We went a lot longer than we initially did, but you know how it is when I enjoy talking uh, about a case. And then on top of that, we started out the first hour with me still being on with the Beagle audience as well. So um, things are handled a little bit differently with that, uh, with that side of things. Other than that, I am going to close up by saying once again that I think Thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging with your girl and sticking with this podcast, even with our long hiatus. I'm still working through some of the voice issues, but um, but we're improving. So that is a good thing. Be sure to go on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us the highest number of stars they have. I think Amazon, I mean, uh, iTunes is five stars. Make sure you leave reviews everywhere. We want this show to be just as big and even bigger as some of those other shows that we know aren't as even aren't even as great as us. Also, if you want to join in on the Daily Fund, make sure you click the link in the comments. I mean, I'm sorry, in the description box to join the Fashion and Dump fashion and drama diaries page on facebook if you want to support the show the cash app and venmo links are also there very important because we do a lot of research and put a lot of work into bringing a good show with good information and that's also fun too this one was was a little heavy but if you've been listening a listener for a while you know we do lots of things fun uh, that are fun as well Woo! That was a whole lot that I was trying to get in, right? Because we're running, uh, I'm almost at a minute, um, an hour 59. (laughs) 
Okay, so always remember, if you are thinking about it and want to talk about it, chances are I'm thinking about it and I want to talk about it too. So let's be honest together. I don't think my theme music worked when we were coming in, but I am sure as heck going to try and do it going out. So let me try. If it doesn't work, don't don't hate folks. Just Just go with me and be like, well, you know what? She tried to give us a little something, so I am going to try. Um, and of course, because of the way I pull it, that is it. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> 